Second Kings chapter eight. Second Kings chapter eight. The whole theme of Second Kings is covenants and character. We're looking at the covenants between God and His people, and the character that God is faithful to His covenant, and sometimes His people are, and oftentimes they're not. And we're in a portion of time in Israel's history, the northern kingdom, where God's people for the most part are not. And yet God still has a plan for them. Elijah has been the central figure during this time period that we've been looking at, and he'll be mentioned in two other chapters in the Bible, but this is the last one where he's kind of the primary character. And so what the writer is kind of concluding and showing us as we're getting to the end of Elijah's ministry is that unlike so many others in Israel's history, who finished poorly, Elijah was faithful to the very end. That's kind of one of the writer's main points. Remember, he's writing to exiles in Babylon. He's going, guys, we're in Babylon because we weren't faithful. But it is possible to change that. It is possible to repent and become faithful. It's possible to return to the Lord and finish well. And so if Elijah, if he could do it in spite of a wicked king, a greedy servant, and an enemy nation determined to kidnap him, surely we can be faithful to the end too, even though we're in exile right now. And you know, that's kind of the lesson of Elijah's life, that that God is always faithful, even though everything around us might be crazy. Everything around him was all the way it shouldn't be. God still had a plan, despite his people's unfaithfulness, because God's character remain steadfast. All it takes then on our part is a willingness to trust Him, and then God will still move in our midst. So chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to begin. We're going to look at a few circumstances where Elijah was working, and then we're going to have a a shift kind of to prep us for chapter 9. So verses 1 through 6 here, we see Elijah's ministry to the woman that, who built him that home that he would stay at from time to time. It says in verse 1, Then spake Elijah unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, go, you and your household, and sojourn wherever you can sojourn. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. <clears throat> now, the situation that we have going on here is that Syria, the nation to the north and east of Israel, and Israel, Syria and Israel have been in a state of hostility pretty much Elijah's entire adult life. Remember, the king of Syria tried to kidnap Elijah, and last we read in chapter 7, the king of Israel just tried to have Elijah executed. And yet, when all of that battle is resolved, Elijah just goes right back to his ministry, traveling from school to school, teaching the students and teaching God's people. That is the very definition of faithfulness. You know, one of my my favorite parts of the New Testament is when Paul gets stoned, he, he, for all extensive purposes, he died because the people leave him there. They don't try to help him. They don't try to bring him in. They think he's dead. They're absolutely convinced he's dead. And, And yet, you know, whether God brings him back to life or he just finally regains consciousness, whatever it is, the crazy part is it says, and he went right back into the city. And you're kind of like, Paul, how about I take a day off? How about about we consult? Let's talk about some things. But the very definition of faithfulness is, all right, that didn't go so well. Let's get back to work because there's a job to do. Elisha's like that. 
He's not walking around going, okay, when's the king of Syria going to come get me now or the king of Israel come get me now? He just gets right back to work. He stays the course. What does staying the course look like for us? Because we're not called to be prophets like Elisha. What does staying the course look like for us? Paul told Timothy what it looked like for him. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read it in our Scripture reading, but we'll highlight a few things again. Paul tells him, to stay the course, he says, preach the Word. I charge you therefore, 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Don't deviate from the, the command to, to share God's Word. Be instant in season, out of season, whether it's something you plan to do or it's caught you off guard. Be faithful. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Do the job that that you've been called to do. For the time will come when they're not going to want to listen to that. They're not going to endure, put up with sound teaching. We're living in those days now. But after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers because they they have itching ears. They want, to be, they want their ears to be tickled or, or tantalized. And as a result, they'll turn away their ears from the truth and they'll be turned unto fables. Sometimes I wonder if you were to put up all the YouTube hits that believers click on compared to how many teachings they click on. But you, Timothy, you watching all things. Always keep your guard up. Don't get snatched away by these fables, these other things. Endure hard times, afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. And then he says, because somebody's got to carry the torch. I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I've, I've finished my race. I've fought a good fight. Finished my course. I've, I, I've kept the faith. I did my job. Now it's your turn. Now you might be thinking, well, I'm not called to be a pastor like Timothy or an apostle like Paul, but the idea is the same. All throughout the New Testament, we're called to not be moved by the nonsense that's going on around us. We're called to stay the course. In Philippians chapter 2, we get a more generic type of charge like this to, to, to those who are, Timothy, of course, being a pastor, but to all of us. In Philippians 2, 14 through 16, Paul tells the Philippian believers, he says, do all things without murmurings and without disputings, without complaining and arguing. Why? That you might be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, really showing that you're God's kids. Without rebuke, no one can look at you and and rebuke your life in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And how do we do that? We hold forth the word of life. Paul says, do that, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Carry the torch, he says. He's writing from prison in Philippians. He's he's saying, passing it on to you, you know, carry the torch, carry the baton, head for the finish line. Well, Elijah, he's doing that. And while he's going through his traveling, he stops at this woman's home who had that place for him on the roof, and 
He stops to warn her of God's impending judgment upon the nation. Look at the latter half of verse 1. He says, arise and go, you and your household. Remember, she's a wealthy woman. She's got servants. You and your family, all your servants. And you need to sojourn. It means to live as a, in a foreigner, as a foreigner or stay as a guest wherever you can. Wherever, get out of Israel, he says, for the Lord has called or proclaimed for a famine, and it's not going to be a two-week egg shortage. It's, it's going to come upon the land for seven years. You see, God brings this because instead of realizing the horror of their sin by resorting to cannibalism instead of repenting, Israel didn't return to God when He delivered them from the Syrians. And so God turns up the heat to wake them up, just like He said He would. And so now, instead of just a shortage in the city, of food in the city of Samaria, now they're going to experience a shortage of food in the entire nation. And it's going to be from God because it will be restricted to Israel. You might be thinking to yourself, well, fine, why don't you just get food from other places? If you go to Israel with us, one of the things we'll point out to you is when we cross the checkpoint from Israel into places like the West Bank, you will literally feel like you were teleported the minute you crossed the checkpoint. Everything is green in Israel. Just as it was prophesied in the book of Ezekiel that God talked about the renewal of the land. It's a supernatural thing. It's a supernatural thing. You will literally cross the checkpoint into those other territories, and it, it will look like you're in a completely different place. It'll be brown. It'll be barren. And that's despite the fact Israelis are sending tons of help to try to use the, all the things they've tried to figure out how to grow food in desert lands. It just won't grow over there. So get out, he says. Go where there'll be food. And so, verse 2, she arose and she did after the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. This woman leaves a lot behind. This is a huge step of faith for her. But it's wonderful to see at least one person in Israel besides Elijah who wasn't stubborn or unbelieving. A common argument that I keep hearing from faith-based talking heads out there is this. Doing things Jesus' way isn't working. It's not working. We're losing our nation. We're losing our way of life. The only way we're going to save our nation, our way of life, is we've got to be even more brash than our enemies. We've got to go on the offensive even more. We're not living in days much different than Elisha's. Very few that, that I converse with see the value of obeying God and staying the course. We hear these clarion alarms going off. We're losing the youth. We're losing this. We're losing that. We're losing this. We're losing that. Maybe you are, <laughs> but I don't see that in places where people are staying the course. I believe God is still God. I believe that the work of the church is still a supernatural thing. We don't lean on our own understanding. I believe that He can grab hold of people's hearts just as much today as He could in any other time period in history. You see, the exiles who were living in Babylon had this mindset of, we've got to do it our way. But here's a woman who, the writer's showing them, she, she went against the culture and she obeyed the Lord. I think probably one of the most common things I hear when I'm we're trying to, me and Bev are trying to counsel people or encourage them to walk with the Lord is, but it's not working. 
You know, I'm, I'm trying that. I've tried that in my marriage, or I tried that as a parent, or I tried that with my parents, and it's not working. But does it really matter whether obedience appears to be working? When did that become part of the equation? Why are we obeying in the first place? Elijah trusted the Lord. And so when he shares with this woman, because she trusted the Lord, she says, okay, we'll go do this hard thing. Do you trust the Lord? That's why we obey. Because we love Him and we trust Him. Now, despite her trust in, in the Lord, when the famine ends seven years later, she returns home to a tragedy. Look at verse 3. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. The word cry means to make an appeal for aid. When she gets back, she finds out that someone else has claimed her home and her land. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's horrible, but maybe I could see how that could happen. No, no, no. This is absolutely beyond illegal in the nation of Israel. One's land was not given to you because you purchased it with money or even because the government allowed you to, to live on it. One's land was one's inheritance directly from God. No one could just claim it. And so when she comes home to this, this problem, she sets off to appeal to the king for justice. Now, it's interesting because if you remember when Elijah was talking to his servant at the time, Gehazi, and they had, this woman had been so kind to both of them, he, he says to Gehazi, what should we do for her? I mean, if she's, they, her and her husband have worked so hard to take care of us and make us feel at home, away from home, like what, what can we do? And so they, they call her in and he says, you know, do you want, I, I know the king, you want me to put in a good word for the king, whatever. And she, she said there in 2 Kings 4.13, I, I live amongst my people. I'm content. I don't need anything else. She didn't want any more influence or status. She still doesn't. But now the very thing that she was content with, that would be the way that she would have a life, a home, a roof, a livelihood to, to work the land, that was all gone and in particular, we also see there's no mention of her husband at all in these verses. We knew she was, they were older and, and that she was barren. She hadn't had any kids, so it was a miracle that she had the child. But there's no mention of the husband anywhere in this story, so either he's not around anymore or he's not capable of providing for her. So losing her home and her land would make her and her family and her household beggars. So she goes to appeal to the king. Now, appealing to this king is not a surefire case. Uh, he's not a godly king, and he doesn't obey God's law. But notice, God is going to orchestrate events so that the king will be sympathetic to her appeal. Look at verse 4. So while this is all going on, she's on her way to go make her appeal to the king. It says, and the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, literally saying means to say. In other words, this is why he, he's there. He says, tell me, I pray, all the great things that Elijah has done. And it came to pass as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life, she made her appeal to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi says, my Lord, O king, this is her. Story I just told you about, this is her. Now, I am incredibly curious as to why Elijah's now leprous fired servant uh, assistant is now here with the king. I'm totally curious about this, and the Bible doesn't tell us, so I want to hear this story when I get to heaven. 
But it tells us the reason that they're talking at this point in time is why he invited him there, is he, the king wants to hear stories about the miracles Elijah had done over the years. You know, I'm thinking to myself as I read this, you're the king. You can invite Elijah, oh, he lives in your city. You can invite him over anytime. He, he's been involved in your life. How do you not know this stuff? <clears throat> and then I thought, how sad. And he always kept God's prophet at, at a distance. How sad that he was always convinced that God was against him. And as a result, he was ignorant of all the awesome things God had been doing his entire reign. God doesn't like me. God's against me. God's this thing's from God. God's doing this. And he didn't know about all the other awesome things God was doing. This is one of the reasons that being in fellowship with other believers is so important, you know? Because when we're not, when we're just on our own, we get a jaded, incorrect view of what God is doing. When we keep to ourselves, we get a jaded, incorrect view. I don't know what spurred the king to all of a sudden ask. I don't know why he didn't just ask Elisha. I don't know why he reached out to a man of low character like Gehazi. I, I think there's something more going on here. But whatever the reason, the reality is, is that God is orchestrating events on behalf of this woman. Because as he's telling the story, finishes telling the story, she comes in, and then Gehazi's like, that's her. That's her. And I just shake my head at verse 6 because it says, and when the king asked the woman, what do you mean asked the woman? Asked if the story was true. How many times do we read about King Jehoram and a message from God will come or, or the you know, prophet will tell him something or someone else will encourage him to trust the Lord and he'll be like, eh, I, don't think it's, I don't think that's what's going to happen. And every time God comes through and yet every time we see him, he doesn't believe. He didn't believe Gehazi. The dead don't come back to life, right? Right? It's always easy to either dismiss or minimize the miracles in other people's lives, or even some of the ones that God's done in our own life when we're not walking with Him. While the main point of these verses here is to show God's faithfulness to this woman, I do think we also see God's continued faithfulness to King Jehoram. It's almost like the Lord saying, I still love you despite your unbelief. I'm still working. Won't you trust me? Won't you let me work in your life too? I think too often we, we presume, like for example, people ask the question, you know, why would God send anyone or allow anyone to go to hell if he loves people so much. Why do we presume that God's not working on that person 24-7? Like, like, why do we default to the idea that, well, God is just kind of, you know, not involved, you know? You know, I'd love to tell you about Jesus, but you happen to live in a third world country that doesn't allow people to share the gospel. So, kind of tough, tough cookies for you. Wish, you know, wish the dice had rolled that you'd been born in America. That's kind of how we act, though, like that, that God is. Like if you're off in some island somewhere, or in, you know, like in an African country where it's hostile to the gospel, or a Middle Eastern country, like somehow God's not working on you night and day, drawing you to himself.
God still loved this man. Every time we see him, God's working, he's working, he's working. Jehoram didn't end the way he did because God wasn't working in his life. It's just he refused to respond. Well, when the king asked the woman, and she said, yeah, that, that's what happened. He raised my son from the dead. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, uh, a court official saying, restore to her all that was hers and all the fruits of the land since the day that she left the land even until now. This is interesting. Because this leads me to believe that it was the king who seized her land and her home. Because how does he know how much, how much fruit was taken in? I can't prove it, but that's what it sounds like to me. It certainly sounds that way from the restoration order. And so I love that God does far above what she hoped to achieve. She just wanted to get her land back, her home back, but she's going to get restored all of the fruits of the field since the day she left for seven years all the way up till now. Was it a long seven years for her in the land of the Philistines? I'm sure it was. Was it an ideal seven years? I'm sure it was not. <laughs> and did it initially look like obeying God? God's word worked for her? No, it sure didn't. But in the end, God was more than faithful to her. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul's prayer, second prayer for the Ephesians, he closes it by saying, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. He is worthy of being trusted no matter what everyone else around you is doing. Even if in this life, maybe you don't see that, you will. You will eventually because God is faithful. Well, verse 7, we, after we see Elijah's ministry to this woman, we now see Elijah ministering in a different place, a place we wouldn't expect him to. Verse 7, and Elijah came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, saying, told the king, the man of God has come here. So Elijah's in Damascus at the same time their king happens to be sick. I don't believe that's a coincidence. Damascus is enemy territory. This is the guy who tried to have him kidnapped, sent an entire army to go kidnap him. What is Elijah doing here? Walking around, shopping in Damascus. There's an interesting thing that when Elijah, Elisha's mentor, the guy who trained him, the prophet before him, when, remember when he was down uh, at Mount Sinai, pouting? And he's, you know, the Lord said, why are you here? And he's like, I've been jealous for you, God. I've been zealous for you. No one else is faithful. And the Lord's like, I've got plenty of people faithful. Get back to work. But then he told him, he said, I've got work for you to do. And he gave him three specific things. I need you to anoint Elisha to be prophet in your place, be your replacement. Need you anoint Jehu to be king of Israel in place of uh, Ahab, uh, Ahab's house. And then I need you to anoint a man named Haziel to be king instead of Ben-Hadad in Syria. Now, I don't know if that event happened off screen, like it's not recorded in the Bible, and Elijah did that, or if Elijah never obeyed that command from God, because we know he didn't obey it with Jehu, because Elisha's the one who's going to anoint Jehu. So because Elisha fulfills that, there are lots of people who believe that he was here, that Elijah passed this task on to his 
his student as well. But Elisha never anoints Hazael to be the next king of Syria. So that doesn't seem to be the case. So why is he here? Well, while Elisha does not anoint Hazael to be the next king of Syria, he does. He does know Hazael will be the next king. And maybe the Lord calls Elisha into the capital of his enemy to plead one last time with Hazael to not become the man God knows he will be once he becomes king. Now, an Israelite prophet, remember, they wear certain clothing that identifies them. So, an Israelite prophet walking around the capital of Syria, particularly this one, is going to draw attention. And so, when they tell the king, the man of God's here, the one you tried to kidnap, he sends a trusted official to greet him, verse 2. I'm sorry, not verse 2, verse 8. And the king said unto Hazael, this is, we don't know anything about this guy other than his position that he's some type of official working for the king, um, he will become, Hazel will become one of the most ruthless and powerful kings Syria ever had. The king says unto him, take a present in your hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him saying, shall I recover of this disease? Disease is too strong of a word. It just means an illness or a sickness. Find out if I'm going to get better. Now, perhaps he sends this gift because he hopes to get a good report by bribing God or his servant. Uh, I, you know, I've had people tell me sometimes, they're like, well, you've got like the red phone to God, right? I'm like, yeah, it's in my office. You need me to make a call? You know? So it's like he says that, you know, you've got the phone to God, right? Here's a fortune. Put in a good word for me. But that's not how God works ever. His anger at our sin will not be appeased by gifts to him or to his servants. Nothing less than the blood of His own dear Son would serve to make things right between me and God, right? You and God. Any other attempt to make things right with God is an insult to the cross. And it reveals that we don't understand just how awful our sin is. We think, well, I'll give something to God, and that should make up for it. I mean, it'd be like telling a person you tried to kill, hey, how about I get you a year membership to Planet Fitness? That'll make up for it, right? We're good. It doesn't make any sense to try to earn God's favor or love. How much better it is to humble ourselves and acknowledge our guilt and then receive His grace. Verse 9, Hesiel went to meet him and he took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels burden. That's how much a camel can carry. Camels are quite strong. They can carry almost a thousand pounds. I've, I've ridden the camel. I don't ever want to ride one again. Um, they are big and they are grouchy. Um, and they, it feels very unsturdy to me personally. I definitely liked my pony rides as a kid much more than the camel ride I had in Israel. They can carry about almost 1,000 pounds, but a usual cargo weight is about 350 pounds. Um, 40 camels worth of 350 pounds of good stuff from Damascus. Damascus was a, the center for trade between Egypt, Asia Minor, and Mesopotamia. They would have access to all the good stuff in the region. Forty camels worth, 350 pounds at least. That's a, that's a huge bribe, huge present. He brings it with him, and he says to, came and stood before Elisha and said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Israel, has sent me to you saying, shall I recover of this disease? By calling himself Elisha's son, he's placing himself beneath Elisha, saying, you're greater than me. Can you inquire of God for me? 
I tend to be worried. I always think I'm dying. Like Bev, Bev always teases me, you know. I'm like, babe, what do you, you think is going on? She's like, you're dying. I'm like, stop. I, I think I am dying. Some of you wives are chuckling because you're married to the same type of person as me. <laughs> ben Haddad, he must be really worried about this illness to treat Elijah with such honor. I mean, he offers him a lot for a good report. Sadly, that type of prosperity is the thing that has seduced many who have been called by God to go off the path of being God's messenger to becoming a hireling, to say whatever needs to be said to keep people happy. But Elijah's not one of those. He's a man of God, and he isn't moved by this bribe. He faithfully gives God's message, even though it's bad news for the king. Look at verse 10. And Elijah said unto him, go. Go, which means take all this stuff with you. I'm not going to take your bribe. I'm not going to ask God to change his mind. Not going to be any negotiations here. I've already got God's message for the king. Say unto him, you may certainly recover. Howbeit, the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. The word recover here is doubled for emphasis in the Hebrew and it's also in the imperfect, which means it views the action from the inside perspective. Basically saying, if we were to take this thing in, in, a, in, a, in a vacuum, will he die of this sickness? Well, I mean, will he recover this sickness? Well, he, he, he would have. The, the problem for him is not his sickness, but God has shown me that he's, he's definitely going to die. If your master's illness was his only problem, he'd be fine. He would have gotten well from it. But that's not his only problem, is it, Haziel? And then Elijah gives Haziel the prophet stare down. Look at verse 11. And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he, Haziel, was ashamed. And then Elisha wept. The word to settle your countenance or the phrase, it means to make one's face take a stand. You ever had your, made your face take a stand, you know? Bev always says to me, she goes, your face is saying different words than your mouth. He put on that face or I'm not moving on this. Hazio, I'm trying to reach you here. You already know the answer to this question. So why are you asking me? Elijah wasn't going to budge. God had already revealed to him what Hazio was going to do. And when he looks at him like that, he's telling him, Hazel, you and I both know you're the king's problem, not the sickness, because you're the one who's going to kill him. And he looked, locked eyes like that until Hazel, it says, was ashamed. It means to be so thoroughly ashamed that you turn away because you know everyone around you doesn't approve. You see, Hazel, when he looked Elijah in the eye, he may have put on a good face at first, but he knew when he looked at Elijah that Elijah knew. And yet, instead of repent, he simply became embarrassed. I remember when I first realized this sickness inside of me. There's something sick inside all of us where we get hurt or offended or embarrassed when people don't think we're better than we actually are, right? Someone accuses you of lying, you've been lying, but you say something along the lines like, why would you say that? Or we throw a pity party because we're embarrassed that someone else knows. This is the pride 
that every human being must deal with at some point. The desire to be thought as good rather than to do good. The desire to be thought as godly rather than to actually be godly. The desire to be spared the embarrassment of having our selfishness or our wickedness exposed. That's why we don't come to marriage counseling when our marriage is bad and we, we know we need help. That's why we don't go share and confess that sin to a brother or sister when we're doing something and we can't seem to overcome it. This is the thing that every human being has to deal with. I don't want people to think of me that way. I don't want people to know. I want them to think better of me than I actually am. And if you and I never deal with that pride correctly, you and I will in some way become like Hazio. We will end up doing wicked or selfish things and then rationalize all of it. Now, when Elisha sees Haziel turn away, that he's embarrassed, but he won't repent, the horror of all that he knows that Haziel will do as the next king of Syria, it just shatters his heart, and he begins to weep. Now, when you bring 40 camels worth of supplies, and you're a high-ranking dignitary, that's going to draw attention, which means people are watching this whole transaction going on. And then when all of a sudden you see the prophet weep, people are going to see that. So Haziel now becomes concerned when the prophet starts weeping, and he says to him, why are you weeping, my Lord? And Elisha answers, because I know the evil that you will do unto the children of Israel. You're going to set their strongholds on fire, their young men you will slay with the sword, you will smash their children and he will rip up their pregnant women. Now, those are horrible things, especially the last two. These are horrors we don't tend to see or hear about in our culture, but the truth is they still occur in and outside of our culture. They occur just in our culture in more acceptable ways, like abortion or surgery. But these specific horrors that he mentions here are happening right out in the open in other parts of the world. Humanity hasn't evolved. We haven't become better. Our continued pride means that these things remain, and it means we should weep for lost souls to turn to God. They might say, why would I weep when I know a person will refuse to change? Because seeing a person's wicked choice with our own eyes should break our hearts. It surely breaks God's heart. I mean, if Jesus could weep when He came to Jerusalem knowing what the outcome would be, if He could weep knowing what the outcome would be, why can't we? Listen, if all you do when you see horrible things like this is get angry, you're not like Jesus or like His true servants. I am hearing way too much today about the Jesus who cleansed the temple with the whip, but I hear very little about the Jesus who wept outside the city before he went in and made the whip. It is the weeping that allows the anger to be holy. If there's no weeping, the anger's not going to be holy. It is the holy anger of a broken heart 
that actually now brings about the righteousness of God. The wrath of man never brings about God's righteousness. My anger doesn't do it. The holy anger that comes from a broken heart, other people then see something different. It's so interesting because Acts tells us that many of those religious leaders who were present when Jesus drove everyone off the Temple Mount with the whip later repented. Why? They saw something different in Jesus. Elijah, he weeps for what Hazia will do. But I think he also weeps because his heart is broken because he always wants people to repent. Well, when Hazel hears Elijah's explanation, he gets upset. Hazel said to him, but what? That's two Hebrew words that mean, no, how could you say that? Is your servant a dog that he should do this great? The word great there means awful, like horrible, big thing. My dog, dog is one of the worst insults you could give in that culture. A wild dog is what it refers to, one that roams around with no master feeding off scraps. Uh, People would use that insult to describe a person who scorned all the good advice and, and defied the gods. I would never do such horrible things. It's interesting. He's absolutely incredulous, even though he plans to murder the king. He's already made plans to murder the king, and he's incredulous right now. Murdering the king and taking the throne is not like these other things Elijah mentioned. I mean, he's a bad king. That's how it works. That's how it starts. See, that pride that he's incredulous right now is the exact reason he will do these other things. Because with no repentance, with his refusal to be honest with himself you're never going to change. Well, when Elijah sees he's not going to change, he stops the conversation. He says, the Lord has showed me that you'll be king over Syria, and then he departs. Or then, then the conversation's over. So he departs from Elisha, and he goes back to the king. Elijah stops the conversation, brings his plans into the light. I've given you like tons of chances to admit it, Haziel. So I'm just going to simply tell you what the Lord's told me. You're going to be the next king. You are Ben-Hadad's real problem. And so at Elijah's frankness, Haziel leaves because he has no intention of repenting. He goes back to his master, and Ben-Hadad asks him, he goes, what, what said Elijah to you? And Haziel answered, he told me that you should surely recover. Half-truth, half-truth. But this likely cheered the king. He probably let his guard down, relaxed a little bit, which would provide the perfect opportunity for Haziel to execute his plan. Verse 15, and it came to pass on the morrow, the very next day, he took a thick cloth, it means a heavy blanket, he soaked it in water, and he spread it on the king's face so that he died, and then Haziel reigned in his stead. And Assyrian inscription, another nation, not Syria, but Assyria, had an inscription called Haziel, the son of nobody. He reigned for 30 to 40 years in Syria, but he was never considered a legitimate king. He ended up becoming the dog that he protested he was not. And so, if you haven't dealt with your pride tonight, yet, 
If you're here and you've never dealt with that, please, I encourage you, don't leave tonight without doing so. Because God loves you. He doesn't want you to become like Haziel, anything like him. So heed his warnings and humble yourself. Now, the exiles in Babylon very likely are thinking at this point, well, man, of course God judged Israel. Of course God judged Syria. Look at them. They're awful, man. But we're not like them. We're from Judah. We didn't do anything like that. And so the writer, when we get to verse 16, he now starts reminding them of their own history. He goes, you know, he's saying, don't be like Haziel, guys, because your history isn't any better. Don't be like Jehoram, because your history is not any better. Look at verse 16. And in the fifth year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, being then king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. That's not confusing at all, is it? (laughs) While this chapter is Elijah's last kind of leading character chapter, uh, most of the information here is actually given to set the stage for this guy Jehu's rise to power. And so the scene has to shift to show us what's going on in Judah because Jehu rising to power, part of his rise is that he's going to judge Judah and Israel. So the scene now shifts from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom of Judah because they play a part in Jehu's story. So during the fifth year of Jehoram, the king of the north, it says during that time Jehoshaphat was still king, but his son co-ruled with him. We know that Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah for 25 years, but the last five years, his son Jehoram was co-regent with him. Now, if you're out there thinking, wait a second, I thought Jehoram was the king of Israel's name. Right. It's also the name now of the king of Judah. So you're telling me that there's a king in Israel named Jehoram and a king in Judah named Jehoram? Yes. Not confusing at all, is it? Not creative at all. Come on, guys. Two kingdoms, two kings, different people, same name. He, though, began to reign. His dad finally dies, and now he begins to reign on his own in the fifth year of Jehoram, king of Israel. His reign is short, and the author tells us why. Thirty-two years old was he began, when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Why? Because he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab. Why did he do that? For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He conducted his life, he behaved in the same way that the family of Ahab did, the same way that the kings of Israel had done. Now, for over 60 years, Judah had had imperfect but righteous kings, Jehoshaphat, his dad, and his grandpa, Asa. They were godly kings. The nation of Judah experienced prosperity and blessing. But in eight years, all of that changed. How did that happen so fast? Why did this guy, his grandpa was a godly man, his father was a godly man, why did he all of a sudden now imitate the kings of Israel and in particular the family of Ahab? Well, he was married to Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Adaliah. Despite Jehoshaphat's solid relationship with God, Jehoshaphat's compromises of making a treaty with Ahab and sealing it by letting his son marry Ahab's daughter ended up almost destroying his family. See, after Jehoshaphat dies, Second Chronicles tells us Jehoram slaughtered all of his siblings 
And he set about ruling in a more secular way. He allowed them to put up idol worship centers and things like that. So while God had been very patient with the northern kings, he is going to be patient with Judah, even more so because he had greater reason to be patient with Judah. Look at verse 19. Yet, even though he went the same way as the kings of Israel, it says, the Lord would not destroy Judah for David his servant's sake as he promised him to give him always a light and to his children. The phrase that God would not means he was not willing or he would not yield. He had made a promise that he wouldn't yield to break it. He was not willing to break it. And the promise was just that would always be a light of, to David, a light to his heirs. The word light there means the ruling presence of an heir. God was going to protect that line of David. He was going to keep it safe even though, even when he told David, I promise that when, if, you're, if you're, your descendants disobey me, I won't kick them out. I won't remove them from the kingdom. I won't remove them from the kingly line, but I will discipline them. And so, because God promised he would never wipe out David's line, unlike Ahab who was promised by God that he, his line would be wiped out if he didn't repent, God is going to bring discipline to David's descendants and to this king. Now, here's the interesting part. If you're in exile in Babylon right now and you're reading this, you knew exactly who David's heir was. You knew where he was. You might have, if you lived in the same area, been able to see him. So no matter how difficult things were in their exile, none of them, none of them could legitimately say that God broke his promise. The line of David was still there. That promise is very important for us too, the God promise God made to David. Because David's line can be followed all the way down to Jesus. Aren't you glad that God wasn't willing to give up on his promise? Aren't you glad he would not yield his faithfulness when we weren't faithful to him? Well, God's initial discipline of Jehoram is going to come the same way it came to Ahab, a revolt from one of their vassal nations. Look at verse 20. And in his days, King Jehoram in the south, in his days Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, we saw that Edom, they did have a king, and they joined Israel and Judah in their war against Moab, but that king was someone who Jehoshaphat had appointed. He was loyal to Israel, or loyal to Judah, not loyal to his own people. Well, this revolt overthrows that appointed leader and sets up one of their own with Edomite loyalties. And so Jehoram says, they've revolted, let's go put the revolt down. Verse 21, so Jehoram went over to Zaire and he took all the chariots with him, his entire cavalry. He's intending to go and smash the Edomite rebellion, but it didn't go his way. It mentions that he ends up having to rise up by night to smite the Egyptians which surrounded him and the captains of his chariots. He brought in all these superior forces. He came in with the whole army. We're going to crush this rebellion. And he ends up, him and all his blessed chariots that he's trusting in, that Israel's not supposed to have, they end up being surrounded. He has to have this stage, this night escape to break through the Edomite line. And even after he does it, it says that the people fled into their tents. They got out, he escapes, but the whole army is scattered and they just go home. And as a result, Judah lost control of Edom. And so it says in verse 22, Yet Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah unto this day. Now, God allowed this to happen to get the king's attention. Hey, 
Do you see what's going on? I'm removing my hand of blessing. Come back to me. Let's talk. Let's get things right. But he doesn't. And so when he still doesn't repent, God lets another revolt happen. Verse 22, then Libna revolted at the same time. Libna is a city close to the Philistines. The loss against Edom severely weakened Judah's army, which made this a prime opportunity for others to revolt. They do. Second Chronicles chapter 21 tells us that the Philistines also invade around the same time that Libna revolts, and they end up defeating Judah. They plunder Jerusalem, and they take captive all but one of the king's sons. Bad times. And yet, he still doesn't repent. And so verse 23 says there's not much else to write about. The rest of the acts of Jehoram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? There's more, but none of it's good. And so Jehoram slept with his fathers. He was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. Second Chronicles 21 makes it clear that Jehoram never repented. God ended up striking him with a disease that ended up killing him because he remained stubborn to the very end. He was buried in the city of David, but no one mourned him. He was not buried with the other kings because he brought nothing but ruin to the nation by his leadership. And verse 25 is going to tell us his son wasn't any better. Verse 25, in the twelfth year of Jehoram, king, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, did Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to re- begin to reign. He was 22 years old when Ahaziah began to reign, and he reigned only for one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, as did the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now, we will learn why his reign ended up being so short in chapter 9. We're going to learn more about this woman, Adaliah. The reason he's pointing these things out is because we're going to learn more about her. We're going to… She's Jezebel's daughter. She ends up almost wiping out the Messianic line We'll learn about that in chapter 11. So there's a lot more here. He's just dropping some names. He's just, the end of the chapter is kind of a setup, a couple setup paragraphs here. But he was wicked because he was influenced by his grandpa Ahab. It says son-in-law, but the word son there means grandson, son, great-grandson. It can be nephew even sometimes. When I read that, I think, okay, well, yeah, I mean, that's not a good grandpa to have. I just found out a short time ago I'm going to be a grandpa. Super excited. I don't want to be a bad grandpa. Like that's prominent in my mind. Be a good grandpa, right? Ahab was a bad grandpa, but he also had a good grandpa, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a godly man. So I wonder when I read this, why, why did the wicked one have more of an impact? It's because the whole reason Ahab's involved in his life is because Jehoshaphat compromised in making a treaty with Ahab. And as you're a parent, you need to understand that your kids, our kids are going to be impacted more. It's not that we don't say things to them, good things to them, but they're going to be impacted more by what we do than what we say. They just will because they're going to see what we actually believe and how we act. Jehoshaphat's son and grandson learned that compromise is okay if it's for the greater good. Alliances with wicked wicked people are worth it if it brings peace and prosperity. And so maybe you might think, well, I'm not going to be corrupted by hanging out with these people. But your kids haven't formed your same convictions yet. 
They haven't had your experiences with Jesus yet. And so what you're teaching them is something very different than the values you actually hold to. Don't do that. Be consistent. Because whatever benefits you're gaining from that friendship or having that person be involved in your life that's wicked, that's not worth. Whatever benefits you gain aren't worth but the cost to your kids. Verses 28 and 29, he went with Jehoram the son of Ahab to the war against Haziel king of Syria in Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Jehoram. It's like a broken record. Just like grandpa did. Grandpa went up there, he almost died, and the other grandpa did die. Going to attack Ramoth-Gilead and fight with Syria was always a death trap for the Israeli and the Judean kings. Ahab ended up being killed attacking the city, and Jehoshaphat only escaped death because he cried out to the Lord for help. I guarantee you this, Ahaziah and his, his uncle Jehoram are not the type to call out to the Lord for help. And so Jehoram ends up getting wounded, and now Ahaziah is going to visit him to see how he's recovering, which will set the stage for God's judgment on both kings. We'll get into that, Lord willing, next Sunday night when we meet a man named Jehu in chapter 9. So, what are we left with? Well, again, remember who's being written to here. We, like the exiles in Babylon, can have two kinds of responses to God's discipline in our life. We can become bitter at God and think He's failed us, or we can wallow in our self-pity because of our sin. But neither of those responses are part of God's plan for us. Neither of those responses is what God was going for when He disciplined us. God's plan for you and me when He disciplines us is to confess our sin, turn from it, and then start walking with Him again. Because God still has a plan for you if you'll do that. And so, the exiles, they would sit around going, God's done with us. He's forsaken us. You know, and, and the guy right is going, he's not done. He's still been faithful. He was always faithful. And if you'll turn back to him, he still has a plan for us. So if you failed or if, if God's disciplined you in some way tonight, acknowledge it. You know, ask him to forgive you and then just start walking with him again. You can't go back and change the past. Dwelling on that, that's where pride lies. Because we think to ourselves, well, I should be better than that. That's why I battled all the time. I should be better than that. I had all, my, all the various struggles I went through in my 20s, my early 30s. I should be better than that. And I finally had to come to I'm not. That's why Jesus had to die for me. I still need him every day. Acknowledge that you still need a Savior every day. And then just start following him again. Because God is not going to leave you in exile if you do that. Because he still has a plan for you. Amen? So I'll stand. Oh, Lord, you are so patient, you're so gracious, and you're so good. Lord, you knew. You knew who we were when you came and died for us. You knew how, well, Lord, you said you know our frame, that we're simply dust. So, Lord, help us. Lord, let the, the truth be driven to our hearts tonight that we're not better than that. We need you how we need you. Every day we need you. So, Lord, if we failed or if we've been disciplined by you tonight, we just confess it. Lord, we've, we've, we've been in sin or we've been disobeying you in this area or we've not trusted you in this area. 
And Lord, we repent. We turn from that and we commit to just start walking with you again. And Lord, for everyone who's doing that tonight, we just fill them with the awareness that they're forgiven, that you have a plan for them, and as they walk with you, you're going to walk with them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.